So you have tutorials. Those are, are learning oriented. You're sitting down, you're going through the tutorial, you're, you're, you're reading something, you're trying it out and you're going back and forth. You read, you, you do, you read, you do, right? They're learning oriented. And then you have your how-to guides. Your how-to guides are problem oriented. You want to solve problem X. You go to the how-to guide, you find problem X, and it tells you step-by-step what it is that you need to do, like the how-to. This is how you solve this problem. And then you have your explanations. Those are the understanding-oriented. Those are the things that you are more likely to see narratives around, stories around. Those are the, the conference talk, if they're done well. They were able to not touch on a bunch of low-level sort of esoteric, you know, minutia, but really paint a broad picture for you. This is what I'm talking about. This is the problem we're solving, and this is the solution I'm presenting. That's your explanation. And then you have your reference. This is exactly where the Go doc sits. Right. It's a reference. It's for lookup. You know exactly what you're looking for. You already know in your mind, yes, I think I've seen a function or a package in Godot does this. Then you go to Godot, you look for it. You're doing a lookup. That's a dictionary, right? Mm-hmm. That's what it is. So all of these things, no one is better than the other. It's all working together that creates a well-documented ecosystem. Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. Our feature flags are powered by LaunchDarkly. Check them out at LaunchDarkly.com. And we're hosted on Leno Cloud Servers. Get $100 in hosting credit at Leno.com slash Changelog. What's up, Gophers? This episode is brought to you by Codish, a podcast from the team at Heroku, exploring code, technology, tools, tips, and developer life. There's a ton of great episodes on the Codish podcast, so I'd encourage you to check it out and subscribe. But in particular, I want to bring to your attention the recent episode featuring Cornelia Davis, the CTO of WeWorks, talking about cloud native, cloud native patterns, and what it really means to be a cloud native application. Here's a sneak peek. Can you define GitOps, maybe give a formal definition and and talk about what some of the implications are? I think that the simplest formal definition actually doesn't involve the word Git at all. It is cloud native operations is the way that I think of it. Now, let me draw an an analog there in that um, one of the things I didn't mention in my intro is that I'm also the author of a book called Cloud Native Patterns. And that book is targeted at developers, software developers and architects who are building these, you know, highly distributed applications, these microservice-based applications and helping them understand all the patterns that you have to put in place to be able to make these microservices-based apps work in this ever-changing environment that they run in. All right, links are in the show notes or head to heroku.com slash podcast to listen and subscribe. Again, check the show notes for links or heroku.com slash podcasts. Go time. Welcome to Go Time, your source for diverse discussions from around the Go community. If you're following Go Time FM on Twitter, then you already know that your chance to win Mark Bates' Raspberry Pi 400 is on and popping. There are three ways to enter. Check the link in your show notes to read all about it. Okay, let's do this. Here we go. Hello, everybody, and uh, welcome to another episode of Go Time. 
This is our second episode of the year, being recorded at least. Is it the second episode? What, what week is it? What? <laughs> it's February, Johnny. This is like the fourth or the fifth episode. We know what time oh. it is. <laughs> <laughs> this is not the second episode. <laughs> yeah, let's keep it moving because, uh, yeah, it's, it's 2021 is starting out a bit suspect, but I'm still holding out hope. There's still hope. All right. So I have some guests today and I have my co-host, the lovely Chris Brendel. Hello, Chris. Hello. How are you, Johnny? I'm, you know, I'm feeling chippy today. I'm feeling good. So we'll see if that sort of comes through in the show, but I'm, feel, I'm feeling good. I'm, I'm feeling optimistic. We did manage to sort of a snag Jared Sento, who's usually our, our editor-in-chief. Yeah. You know, like making sure we all sound good, you know, in post and everything else. Right. Cutting out all the excess and stuff like that. We did manage to, to snag him right before we went live. We convinced him to join us to talk about documentation today. Yeah, normally when you want to complain about GoTime content, you just email Matt Ryer. But if you want to complain about how it sounds, then you can contact me. But today, I guess you can just blame me for everything. Because yes. I'll say dumb yes. things and make the sound not so great. So, But happy to be here with you, Johnny and Chris. Awesome. We'll have fewer bad jokes. That, that'll be the thing. Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. I can't promise that either. <laughs> Awesome. Last but certainly not least is uh, Ian Lopshire, who says he's like, what was the joke again, Ian? Please say it again. What was it? Uh, like a hobbit that quite can't quite stand straight? Lopshire. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Which is epic. Oh, man. All right. So we have a pretty, I think, nice show for you today. It's a topic that is, I think, universally applicable to all developers, whether you're, you're a Go developer, Ruby, Java, C Sharp, whatever, I think this is going to apply broadly. But obviously, this is the Go Time podcast. We're going we're to tie it into some Go content naturally. But the topic itself is one that we've heard from uh, folks that actually suggest topics and episodes um, for, for the podcast as well. And also out there on social media, you know, we've seen some talk about documentation, you know, here and there. But really what brought this show together, for me, the moment sort of the topic came up in the context, especially in the context in which it came up, I was like, okay, we, we, we naturally we've got to do a show on documentation. And for me, what prompted that was a post recently by a Force Brazil, I believe, of, of ACOG Guru around documentation not just reading documentation like we, we're typically used to, or at least that I'm typically used to, not just lookups, you know, when, when you're stuck kind of thing, but really deeply consuming documentation. And this became even more relevant when uh, um, Eric Miller, who actually suggested uh, um, one of the episodes, um, so shout out to Eric for, for a, a nice topic suggestion there. His take was that coming from Python, which has extensive and often narrative documentation, Go docs in particular seem like just a bag of functions, documentation of functions. I think a deep dive on how to approach Go docs would be a great topic for beginners such as myself. I've just started uh, working on, on Go and have learned a tremendous amount from the show. Um, you know, not assuming that everybody is, you know, is familiar with, with Go, et cetera, et cetera. But his concern sort of resonated, right? This is not the first time we as sort of veterans in the Go community have heard of this comment that our Go documentation is really, really meant for lookup, not really for learning and developing sort of your practice of, of doing Go, right? So today's show is really about 
documentation in the sense of how do we consume it today? How should we consume it? With what purpose and intent should we be consuming documentation? So that's the level set. That's the sandbox we're going to be playing in today. And I'm going to fire off the first salvo to our guest. Hi, guest. You're in the hot seat. All right. <laughs> How do you consume documentation today? And what style? And what cir- under what circumstances? You're right. It is, it is a bit of a hot seat. I think there's kind of two places. It's when something's gone wrong and uh, trying to figure out why. And second, like kind of as the beginning of a project, just to kind of get some context around how the things I'm using work. And maybe not just technical documentation, but like other documentation, like policies, stuff like that. Like I try to, at the beginning of a project, kind of at least do like a a overview of a lot of it. And Chris, same question to you. When do you find yourself looking up documentation or diving in somehow? So I think I have like two parts to my answer here. Because I think like with Go, I spend a lot of my time kind of looking at Godoc, looking at source code, like trying to find all of the information that I can to like understand how to do something. So I think like when I am trying to learn something new, like trying to learn a uh, library that I want to use or something, I'll like scour the documentation there. Um, And then the other type is definitely like when I um, kind of need to understand or need to remember something, right? Like I have Dash, which is like a really awesome piece of software for Mac OS where you can just like hit a hotkey, type in some words and like, boom, now you have the, the API that you're looking for and you can like understand how to use it. And I definitely think that, that when it comes to documentation as well, in Go, it is one of those things I think is our, our weakness as a community. I got my start in, of all things, PHP and Drupal. And one of the things that I've always loved about that community and that software is that there is so much documentation, like just so, so, so much of it. And that documentation is actually what enabled me to become a software engineer in the first place, just being able to sit down and read docs. So I think there's a part of me that still yearns for that type of documentation of just like heavily documenting how something works so someone can just sit down and read it. And it's not you know, as Godoc has traditionally been, a, a kind of bag of function documentation, oftentimes uh, lacking in, in critical ways. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the first sort of thing I noticed with documentation or, or reference material or learning material in, in general, regardless of the technology I've been in, right, is that you always notice an ever-flowing uh, um, stream of just new sort of a, a tutorials, new beginner content. I mean, Ruby, for example, is very, very old uh, um, as a language, very established. It's been around for a long time, yet you still see new content coming, you know, like on blogs or, or videos. There's an ever-flowing stream of, of learning material. A lot of it tends to be sort of beginner to intermediate sort of a level related uh, content, but because everybody's always sort of learning and or wants a new take on something or a new generation of programmers that are adopting the language, they're, they're picking up on new things. It's the same thing, you know, with Go, obviously, and Go's been around for quite some time now. And we still have a lot of, every now and then I'll see, you know, some posts on Medium or, or a number of other developer-related sites uh, on content just coming out, those tutorials and those videos on YouTube. Uh, shout out to Francesca and Poi, Just for Funk. Uh, I miss that show. I, I miss you, uh, Francesca. But yeah, there's, there's always this content coming in. And those things play a role, 
right, in our education as developers, in, in part of the documentation lore, right? But what we're talking about here really is th- there's a threshold where you consume documentation not because you're stuck and you're looking for an answer, not because you want to look up a term, not because you want to solve a problem in the middle of a debugging session, but really documentation for sort of absorbing and immersing yourself in a problem domain or a technology, right? And that's the context. That's the whole notion behind Forrest's post, which is actually titled The Career-Changing Art of Reading the Docs, in which he provides some examples of one individual in particular, Jared Short. Shout out to Jared. I just started following him on Twitter. He's, he's a very knowledgeable person. He basically uses Jared as sort of a, an example of what happens when you have somebody who deliberately consumes documentation not because they have a particular problem they're solving right now, but because they're trying to get wrap their head around the entire problem domain, right? Like, and this is something that I've intuitively sort of done, but I've never quite found the words to articulate sort of that extra level that you sort of reach once you really start to consume everything front to cover, front to back, I mean, cover to cover, right? Uh, the, the manual of a piece of technology. I'm wondering... If any of you have experienced that level of ascension, if you will, it's like, it's like a, you come to realize, oh my God, there's so much I don't know about this. And Jared, I haven't heard from you yet. And I know Mm -hmm. you do some Elixir. I know you do some, some other stuff. I'd be interested in seeing if, if, in hearing if you've experienced anything like that. Great question. I've never considered if I've ascended before. So I'm trying to sit here and think, (laughs) have I, have I reached ascension in my deep dives of a particular technology? And I think what we find, or what I've found, is that usually the documentation, I guess, leaves off before there's any sort of holistic view. Like it maybe it comes up short for me to reach that point. And I find myself reaching into the source code in order to go from there. So I think at a certain point, whatever, I mean, there's different kinds of documentation, so we can talk about that. If we're talking about like the official first party documentation for a piece of software. I can't say, for any particularly complex piece of software, I can't say I've ever reached that point without going to the source code. And then I feel like, okay, now I understand this like mm-hmm. intuitively and inside and out. Because the documentation usually doesn't take you there. I think it's probably pretty hard to write documentation that good, especially in open source. For smaller projects, I feel like maybe I can. I feel like Jeremy Ashkenaz's literate programming efforts around CoffeeScript and specifically underscore JS, where he wrote the documentation in a literate manner, which I was thinking about as I was listening back to your guys' show on writing, where you really are narratively telling a story of a piece of software. So I think something that Chris would really think is cool. I remember like feeling like that told me the story of the software in a way that I understood it just from reading the docs. And the docs was really narrative and specific and telling why it's trying to do what it's trying to do. And it was really neat. And I feel like I got there maybe with that, but underscore JS is a group of utility functions, you know, CoffeeScript more complex, but maybe that, but I don't know. Have you ascended, Johnny? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a short answer to that. Yeah. I do want to give uh, uh, Chris and Ian a chance to also sort of, I guess, pontificate. I don't think that's a good word for this, what I'm looking for here. I'm looking that's... for a, a realization or coming to deity moment of documentation exploration. Has, has that ever happened? Have you ever sensed that, okay, I've consumed enough material on this thing, right, outside of the concept of solving a particular problem, that I've somehow leveled up? 
Yeah. So you, you just talked about how a lot of uh, projects don't often like fall short of kind of getting you to that level that you feel like you've ascended. Uh, but where, where I think that can happen is in like actual specifications. Like if you go read the, the PGP spec or something like that, where like by definition, they have to get into those details. Yeah. Everything. Everything. I think that that's where you can kind of have that ascension moment. And a, a good exercise for that would be to go read one of those top to bottom and just highlight everything you don't understand in red, right? Mm -hmm. And then read it one more time and then do the same thing. But a lot, you'll notice the second time, a lot of that red's just gonna go away. Uh, mostly because you just have this context. You start understanding the idioms they're using, the language they're using, mm -hmm. um, kind of their ideas. Mm -hmm. And I think once you kind of have the whole thing in your mind, that's when you have this ascension moment. Yeah, exactly, exactly. One of the things I usually tell Go developers that are sort of wrapping their heads around Go, once you've done a tutorial, which I think the first time I went through the Go tutorial online, I went halfway through. I was mentally exhausted. I was drained. It was a, a different paradigm than I was used to. It was a different way of thinking, of looking at programs. I was trying to figure out, is it, is it oh, oh, is it functional? Is it like, like there was a lot going on in my head. I'm, I'm trying to wrap my head around this whole new language. And I had to pause halfway through and then you know, went to watch some other videos or, or consume some content tutorials and whatnot. And then I had to come back to it. And every time I'd get a little farther in and, but I'd start from the beginning every time. And then as I did that, I experienced the same thing you just talked about, whereby things made a little more sense the second time or third time or fourth, fourth time around, right? It just started to make more sense. So Chris, have you ascended? <laughs> <laughs> I love this question. <laughs> I want to give two examples because I have one that is non-software and one that is software. So my non-software one um, kind of dates back to my days in college when I was a freshman. And at my college, we'd gotten this brand new television station. So like no one knew how anything worked in it. And I joined up and I was like, oh, this is also cool. And there's this, this thing called a video switcher, which if you've ever seen a picture of a, of a television station or TV studio, it's that thing with all of the, the lights and the yeah, buttons. And the knobs, yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's like, it's, it's actually pretty simple, but it looks crazy. And I saw that and I was like, I want to know how this thing works. Um, so I, I sat down and I literally pulled out the manual and started reading it kind of like cover to cover. And I had no idea and didn't understand anything for like the longest time. I was just like reading it and I'm like, I don't get it. Like, what is all this for? I am confused. But after like a couple weeks of just like sitting down and doing that, all of a sudden I was like the most knowledgeable person in the station about how this switcher worked. And it felt super, super good because like everyone else was like now coming to me with questions about like, how do we set this up? How can we do this? And we got to do all of this really awesome graphic stuff that we couldn't do before because now someone had acquired the knowledge of, of the switcher. So I think that's one of the, the earliest times I can remember like sitting down and pushing myself through documentation mm -hmm. until like I understood something. And I think that level of perseverance and the payoff I got from it motivated me to do the same thing with Drupal, which for those of you that don't know, Drupal is a content management system and it's written in PHP and it is probably one of the most complex pieces of software that exists. Its learning curve is absolutely atrocious. Like you will spend so long trying to figure out how anything was working and it will still be confusing, but it has a ton of really good documentation. And I remember... Um, over the course of, of the summer before I like became a 
real software engineer, I was just reading the documentation over and over and over, and like none of it made sense. And I was, I think at some points I was literally screaming, like, why aren't you working at my computer? And then kind of as Ian was saying, like as I went through things over and over and just kept digging and digging and digging and trying to figure out how things work, things just started to make sense. And as I kind of alluded to before, like that's literally how I managed to get my first job as a software engineer, just because like I understood how Drupal worked and it was super hot at the time and people really, really wanted people that could actually go in and like build custom modules and do things with Drupal. Mm -hmm. So I think like this, this topic of documentation is super near and dear to my heart because it's like one of those things that like allowed me to become a software engineer in the first place. (laughs) It's interesting. Like there's this common thread in all these stories, which I think we can't let escape, right? So that common thread is that the content that Ian sits down to consume, the content that Chris sits down to consume, it's not like y'all have some secret backdoor access to some, you know, mythical library somewhere where you're the only one who has access to that content and you go and you learn things and you come back from the mountaintop, you know, with all the knowledge. It's the same exact content that everybody else has access to, right? Yet people would rather come to another person, another human to ask a question rather than reading the docs. All you have to do is look online if you can somehow avoid the doom scrolling, but you'll find on on social media sites of people asking questions whereby a bunch of other people are just jumping in and says, hey, have you tried this? Have you tried that? Right? And then you'll have that one person who has actually read the docs and says, oh yeah, here's the thing you need. Click here. Right? Usually you have a lot of people that basically, for, for example, I'll use AWS because that's my bread and butter. So typically I see this as well. You have people who ask questions in the forums or on Stack Overflow and you typically have, you know, maybe an AWS employee who jumps in and provides a direct link to something or provides some piece of seemingly esoteric knowledge around, you know, what could be happening, what the problem might be. Right? So these people are, live and breathe that tech. But a lot of times, which is why you have, you know, people like AWS Heroes or whatever, these awards that, you know, that are given out to, to, to folks who basically have done the work to be as knowledgeable or more knowledgeable than the support people in the forums, right, that come and provide these answers. So it's, it's it's a magical thing when folks out there that are using the technology are coming to you who do not work at company X, right, about technology from company X. It's, it's a, it's an amazing sort of feeling. It's an amazing thing to, to watch and see, but everybody has the same access to the same content. Yet the blog posts still get an audience, the videos still got an audience, whether they're beginner or intermediate level or not, right? There's a constant stream of content. It's hard to really, I mean, you kind of have to ignore some at some point, but you know, there's just so much of it, but that's the common thing, right? Everybody has access to the same content, but only those who spend the time immersing themselves, right? And deeply sort of a, a, consuming that content back to back so you can get context around the technology. Only those people are considered the experts in, in a way. So with that in mind, my next question to you is, has that expertise building, right? And I think, Chris, you, you touched on this earlier. Has that expertise building helped you in your career, right? Like, do you have a, a recollection or, or memory, like Chris just gave as an example? Do you have a recollection that says, yes, demonstrating that expertise here based on the work I had put in, right? Maybe reading the docs, doing some exercise, whatever it is, right? Outside the context of actually solving a problem you have right now, right? That deliberate effort. Has that in some way 
helped you in your career? I will say a resounding yes. There's this really interesting trait about me and my career that like, I've only kind of realized in the past couple years. And that is that I've never had a job where I've been in a, I never had a software engineering job where I've been in a junior engineering position. Like every job I've been at, I've been like the most senior person on the team as far as knowledge and expertise in whatever we're working with is, whether that was Drupal or Go. And I think pretty much all of that is owed to me sitting down with the documentation and, and pushing myself through and continually learning, not because I needed to solve a problem right now, but mostly because I was interested in how things worked and dug into them and sat down and was like, all right, this thing is bothering me that I don't have this knowledge right now. So I'm going to go and really acquire this knowledge. And you wind up, you know, when you try and acquire one piece of knowledge, you acquire a ton of like ancillary knowledge around it. Mm-hmm. And I think that is what that's the kind of mindset that I had that led to me being so senior most of the time because everybody else around me was, you know, doing the thing that was mentioned where they just like go and ask someone to answer a question that they had right now. And then, oh, my question's answered. I, I'm not going to have to dig around anymore. And I think when you have to dig in the docs, you spend a lot of time like finding other things and asking other questions. And as soon as you kind of jump from question to question to question, you just kind of grow your knowledge base. And that's what I feel I've done in my career. And that's what's led me to this kind of peculiar position where I'm just like, yeah, I've never, I've never been in that like junior engineer position or that intermediate engineer position. It's always everyone else coming and asking me, oh, how do we do this? How does this work? Can you design a system to solve this problem that we have? Ian, I want to hear from you. Yeah, I'll, I'll mirror Chris on this and it's a resounding yes, um, but kind of in a little bit of a different way. In my previous jobs, I've worked like really close with, with payroll and HR teams. Um, to build like automations around those. And I was really really successful because I was able to dive in and read uh, not only the laws, but like the company policies and just really like if I was able to gain a really large context around all of those. So when someone came to me and said, hey, can we do this? The answer would be like, oh no, that's actually not legal or yes, we can do that. Or, Or when someone proposed something like, once you have that context around like a problem domain, working with that team is just so much easier. Like, yeah. There's a nuance here there, right? Because you have to be very deliberate with that knowledge acquisition, right? So you don't have infinite number of hours. If you do, you and I need to talk because I would like to borrow some of your mojo. But um, we have we have finite a number of hours every day that we can dedicate to this, right? One of the examples I was given in, in the post I read was that, uh, you know, the, the individual dedicated an hour a day or, or something like that, like a, a specific set of time, even going as far as to block it off on their calendar, right, um, as deep work, right, so that they would be uninterrupted in this sort of deliberate knowledge acquisition, right? Not fixing a bug, not trying to do something in the day-to-day, but literally trying to read, you know, the next chapter of the manual, right, which is slightly different, obviously, uh, but in the context you give, I'm wondering... The new ones that I've identified there is that you might spend a lot of time getting to know your the problem domain, not just from the, the, the technology domain, but the business domain, right? So at that point, if you can somehow demonstrate the ability to communicate, right, using the terminology, using the language of the business, right, something that is very prevalent in the What's the book I'm thinking of? Uh, domain-driven uh, design, uh, right? It, like learning to communicate 
right? And the language of the business, of the people with the people around you. Like somehow you become a conduit. You become that sort of that bridge from here's the thing the business wants to do. And here's the thing that you, the engineer, right, who can translate those needs into actual running software, right? You become an expert, right, at that as well. So it's not just deep work around the tech, but it's deep work around your problem domain, right? Would you say that's fair? Yeah, I'd say that's fair. I almost think understanding the problem domain is almost more important than the tech. Like, I feel like so often, like a, a business has a need and they come to tech with like a solution, right? One of the my sayings at previous jobs was, don't come to me with a solution, come to me with the problem. Because we know the tech, right? We know that what's possible, what's not possible, what works well, what doesn't. Uh, the business people might not know that. But if they come to you with a problem, you can create probably a better solution, better technological solution than they could have, just because you know the tech. And as long as you know enough of the business to also know how to solve that problem, I think you end up with a lot better software in general. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think the Galaxy brand move there is to be able to actually extract the problem from their given solution <laughs> and then say, let's back up here. And you can just even ask them. So I've done this plenty. I've, had, I've done a lot of client work and clients come and tell you what they want. And then you say, hold on, hold on, hold on. What problem are you trying to solve? And then they say, well, I'm trying to solve this problem. And you're like, oh, well, there's six ways of solving that problem. And you just give me the one of them. Happens mm-hmm. to be yours is the most expensive way that you could have possibly selected because you, know, you don't know any difference. And so I'm here to give you the five other options. We can talk through them, et cetera. But going back to the conversation about reading and, and uh, really what, like the deep work concept that you're talking about, Johnny, I want to state something that's totally obvious, but needs to be said, reading is really hard and read and applied reading is even harder. Mm-hmm. And so hard things aren't fun generally unless you have some sort of other motivation, like Chris really wanted to understand this, or maybe you want to really excel in your job. And so a lot of us fail to read well because reading well is hard and requires discipline and applied effort and really becomes, I think, a superpower for software developers who can read well. You're talking about where a lot of us get stuck, Johnny. Stack Overflow is easy unless they remove your question. <laughs> but a lot of times you don't, have to, you don't have to put a question up. It's already been asked and answered, right? Google's easy. Walk across the room, ask your senior you know, lead, easy. But like actually digging in there and reading what you have to read to grok whatever system, whether it's in the small or in the large, holistically understand everything, that's, a, that's hard work. And so you have to apply yourself and... Uh, sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. And I think the people that succeed a lot of times in software are those that have just powered through that difficulty enough times where it does start to get easier and easier and easier over time. And then you can get to a point where you can now critique the docs and say, hey, here's where it's falling down here. Mm -hmm. But it is really hard to do well. And so I think it's worth acknowledging that. Me acknowledging that for myself has allowed me to persevere sometimes because I get down on myself. And I'm like, actually what I'm trying to understand here is really complicated and these docs aren't quite what I would need to get there but I'm going to just keep banging my head against the computer until I get there and so I think I would encourage other people to do that when you're down in that moment of despair where you're like I'm never going to understand this actually I think perseverance is what uh, dictates success in a lot of those circumstances and and you know that kind of reminds me of like I think part of my background that like enables me to do this like uh as a child I was both an athlete and a musician 
And I think the, the common conception about both sports and music, and I think art to a large degree, is like, oh, you're doing it because it's fun. Like, you enjoy doing this. It's like fun and enjoyable. And I think if you talk to really any musician uh, or any artist or, or athlete, they're like, this is not fun. Like, my body hurts or I am like playing the same boring thing over and over and over again because right. I keep messing it up. I think that that perception of like, oh, this should be fun. I should be enjoying this. And if I'm not enjoying this, then I shouldn't be doing it or something is wrong is like the, the key thing that makes it hard for people to do things like actively read and, and consume this type of content. And I think you, you kind of gain that perseverance, not by like doing something magical, but by just like pushing yourself like a little bit more each time and not pushing yourself too much because I think that's something that a lot of people do is they're just like and I've definitely been guilty of this myself where you're just like I'm just going to learn this I'm going to sit down I'm going to like spend four hours a day reading this and doing this and then that is how I'm going to learn it and of the the kind of successful habits that I've had in my life none of them have been built like that. Uh, they've all been built by me starting off with something small that I can do consistently and I do it every day or I do it every whatever the cadence is, no matter how I feel, no matter if it's like I'd rather be doing something else, no matter if it's like it, I don't have anything like my writing is like this. It's like I write every day. It doesn't matter if I like don't have anything that I can think about writing or if I don't feel like writing or my day is super busy. It's like, no, I, I sit down and I do it because that's how you really build those skills. And that's how you really build that that perseverance and that stamina. And I think that's the same thing with kind of reading the docs. You don't have to dedicate three, six, seven hours a day to reading docs to, to kind of get more of this knowledge. You just have to dedicate a good chunk of time every day and say, okay, every day I'm going to spend, if it's 15 minutes or half an hour sitting down, and this is my concentration time. This is the time I'm going to dig in and, and read these docs and really trying to understand. And if I get stuck, then I get stuck. And I read the same thing over and over. And I, I kind of push past a little bit to see if there's something a little bit further down the line that'll help me. But if there's not, then I'm, I'm going to stay here and I'm going to sit and I'm going to try and do it. And if I'm stuck for too long, I'll, I'll go to something else and I'll come back later. But I, I think that's the thing you have to do for the perseverance. It isn't, as as Johnny said, it's not magical. We don't have access to some special information somewhere. It's literally just block out the time, do it, and do it every day, mm -hmm. and even when you don't want to. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Equinix Metal, globally interconnected, fully automated bare metal. Equinix Metal gives you hardware at your fingertips with physical infrastructure at software speed. Accelerate your workloads with fully automated bare metal that's secure, powerful, and cost-effective. This is the promise of the cloud delivered on bare metal. Equinix Metal makes it easier than ever to take advantage of the unmatched global reach and connectivity ecosystem made possible by Equinix, which includes more than 220 data centers, across 63 metros, making interconnection easy. And they're obsessed with making bare metal even more awesome. Seriously, check out these features. 60-second deploys, hourly pricing, a customer success team that engages over Slack, x86, Intel, AMD, and ARM, single tenant, NVMe and SSD storage, RESTful API, 
first-class DevOps integrations, Equinix Fabric integration, support for enterprise OSs and open-source Linux OSs, air-gapped installs without a public IP, no installed agent or keys, extensive open-source love and support, plus so much more. Visit info.equinixmetal.com slash changelog, get $500 in free credit to play with, plus a rad t-shirt. Again, info.equinixmetal.com slash changelog. do have to acknowledge that if all things being equal, if you are capable of sitting down for 30 minutes and an hour or two for really like a, a, a decent amount, chunk of time to consume content, that's great, right? Then it's just a matter of, I don't want to call it willpower, but um, your motivation, right? Just to sit down, like you're saying, Chris, like, you know, like sitting in that pain to, to push through that pain so that because on the other side, there's a payoff. But I, I do want to acknowledge that for some, it's, it's not easy, right? Perhaps it's a, some sort of a reading disability. Perhaps it's, it's ADHD. Perhaps it, whatever the case might be, I don't know enough about these um, challenges to speak to them. I'm hoping there are solutions out there for those who struggle with these things uh, to be able to sort of take advantage of, what, I guess, what we're prescribing here today, right? That, that, that deep sort of consuming of documentation to achieve expertise. But I think that's something I, I do want to acknowledge, right? So I'd love to, you know, if, if folks in, in the GoTime channel they had know of any resources or things, things like that that they want to share, I'd love to be able to put that out there for, for those who could benefit. I, I do want to switch gears slightly back towards the Go documentation because we haven't yet answered Eric Miller's query, right? <laughs> How do I, right? Coming from you know other languages, in, in his case it was Python, right? Where where the the documentation is more narrative in nature, right? You can you can, that that's the kind of documentation you can sit down and read cover to cover, and and I'm not saying it's some sort of nice romance novel. You you're gonna, you, you know you're gonna be happy with it, you know whatever. But it, it is it is much more readable, right? Than our documentation, the, the Go docs, which are more reference like, not storytelling, not reading, you know, content. It's not, it doesn't lend itself well to cover to cover reading, right? So what can we do, right, in the Go community, right, to make some aspect of Go documentation? I'm not saying let's blow up, you know, Go docs and reinvent it. I think there's an opportunity here for complementary, right, documentation that makes for a more readable facet to the body of documentation we have. And yes, there's tutorials and blog posts and things like that, but there's different kinds of documentation, which I'll touch on in a bit, but any ideas, any first impressions of how we within the Go community could make our content, our documentation more consumable? I think one of the things, which was a, an episode we had really recently, was the, the kind of play with Go system. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's a, a really good foundation to build uh, kind of fantastically better documentation on. So I think uh, definitely a, a part of the the problem here is is from the kind of like the library maintainer perspective of like how do I go about writing documentation? I think a lot of library maintainers do want to have really good documentation, but I think when you look at like the examples of like what is fantastic documentation, I think like Bolt DB is like a really good example. 
it's just like, okay, there's a giant readme and, and Ben sat down and took a lot of time in figuring out what he wanted to put in there and what, you know, basically just dumping out information. And I think that's really hard to do, especially with everything that is kind of on library maintainers as it is. Like it's, it's not easy maintaining a Go library, especially an open source one, like personal experience, like it is very difficult to do. And I think if we gave more tools to make it easier to, to kind of guide library maintainers to what is kind of expected, it would be a bit easier to kind of get that, not really higher quality, but like more narrative documentation, that the stuff you can kind of just easily, more easily follow. So can we talk about some different kinds of documentation? Because I feel like as a community, the Go community can rally around the other kinds of documentation more so than the official reference docs. Is that fair? Or as a somewhat of an observer of the Go community and not all in the inside, let me ask this question first. Can you go collaborate on that documentation? Or is that the Go team that does the doc? I mean, can we actually affect that change or not? I don't know. Well, I want to hang on to that question because okay. I think we should level set a little bit around what it means to produce documentation. So a few years ago, maybe four, four now, three, three or four years, I saw this talk from a person by the name of Daniel. I'm, I'm sure I'm butchering his name. Uh, Daniel um, Prasida. And... Uh, it was a, a talk given at PyCon, um, Australia, um, in 2017. And in that talk, Daniel proceeds to sort of break down, I guess the ex I, I experienced the talk, sort of a wiping away of some crud I had in my eyes around the different kinds of documentation, because I was conflating different kinds of documentation together. So he clarified, he washed away sort of the mud from my eyes for me so I could see the different kinds of documentation and how sort of they fit together, right? So you have uh, um, tutorials, right? The, those are, are learning oriented, right? You're sitting down, you're going through the tutorial, you're, you're, you're reading something, you're trying it out. And, you know, so you're going back and forth, you know, you read, you, you do, you read, you do, right? They're learning oriented, right? And then you have your how-to guides. Your how-to guides are problem-oriented, right? You want to solve problem X, right? You go to the how-to guide, you find problem X, and it tells you step-by-step -step what it is that you need to do, like the how-to. This is how you solve this problem, right? And then you have your explanations. Those are the understanding-oriented, right? Those are the things that you're more likely to see narratives around, stories around. Those are the, 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 the conference talks, right, if they're done well. They were able to not touch on a bunch of low-level sort of esoteric, you know, minutia, but really paint a broad picture for you as, as this is what I'm talking about, this is the problem we're solving, and this is the solution I'm presenting, right? That's your explanation, right? And then you have your reference. This is exactly where the Go doc sits, right? right. It's a reference. It's for lookup. Right. You know exactly what you're looking for. You already know in your mind. Yes, I think I've seen uh, you know, a function or a package in Go that does this. Then you go to Go that you look for it. Right. You're doing a lookup like that. That's that's a dictionary. Right. Mm -hmm. That's what it is. So all of these things, no one is better than the other. It's all working together. Right. That creates a documentation ecosystem, a well-documented ecosystem, right? So to circle back around to your question, Jared, what's the right angle here? There's lots of ways we can go about this whole documentation or, or attempting to solve 
you know, Eric Miller's problem, right? So I'm sure he has the tutorials he has access to, like we like we all do, right? Uh, there's some how-to guys strewn about here and there. Not, I would say we can do better with the explanation um, aspect of things, which I suspect really that's what's lacking for him. And obviously we have the reference, which is golden. It serves its purpose. Knowing what we know of documentation and what I've just explained here, how could we try to solve Eric's problem? Mm-hmm. So the... The Godoc, like you said, is like reference, right? You need to know what you're looking for. But I don't think it has to be. I've been in Godocs for certain repositories where there's a lot of like specific examples about how to do specific things with that library. And I think that's that really is where you can provide the the why and the how-to. And I think highlighting those examples better and just having them goes a long way into making Godoc way more usable, especially for newer people. Well, that goes back to my question about like who can edit those and who can work on that. Because ultimately, like Johnny says, you have these four kinds of documentation, right? And no one, no single one person or no, no small core team would we ever expect to accomplish all of that, right? So where can we actually affect change as a Go community? Where can we throw in and improve? And I'm just curious, are there pull requests against GoDoc? Can you throw examples in there and they'll be added? I know one thing that uh, other communities have done in the past have had their online docs and underneath them they add a discuss board for people to like add comments underneath and say, hey, here's a great example of when I just did that or avoid this particular use case. And so they're enabling the users of the language to add to the docs without being official, right? It's just a discussion underneath. So I don't know how all that works, but definitely the Go community can add to the corpus of how-tos and explainers and discussions. And so maybe helping Eric understand that ecosystem. Where do I go for my discussions? Do I go to Stack Overflow? Do I go to the Golang uh, Gopher Slack? If I have a question that's contextual and I need someone's advice, where are those discussions taking place in the Go community? I think to kind of answer your question directly, you know, Godoc is generated from the repositories themselves. So opening a pull request to whatever library that you're interacting with is a way that you can, you know, add more documentation, add examples, kind of add more prose. I think Godoc, even though it's now being retired in favor of Go.dev, I think that it had the right idea, right? Because I think I, I definitely agree with Ian here that Godoc isn't really only reference, not in reference in the way that I think we're thinking about it. I think it's closer to reference in the way that like a manual style is, Chicago manual style is, right? There's a lot of, you know, you know, I, I want to know how to use this word in this context. Okay, boom, go here, read this. But there's also a lot of essays. Uh, and I think that's true of most manuals. That's like, here's some general information about this topic, about how to use this thing that you can just sit down and read, and now you'll understand more. And I think, once again, to go back to what Ian was saying, good Godocs look like that. You know, you have this kind of giant thing at the top that is this prose, that is this narrative of like, this is how you use this package. This is how you use this series of packages. And then you have these examples that are like, if you want to do a specific thing, here's how you do that specific thing. And then you also have the reference. And I think that a lot of the problem with, probably a bit of the problem that Eric is having, a problem I've had myself, is when those things aren't there. And Godoc is literally just a reference. And usually when that happens, the, even the reference stuff, you, you have to just look at the source code anyway, because like there's just not enough in the doc comments to give you an understanding of you know how to even use this thing. And I think that's probably caused by, by two things. I think one is that we 
as a language, since our source code is so regular, is really easy to read. So I think for a lot of us, we just go and read the source code because it's not going to be frustrating to read that. And that gives us this kind of really low level inherent understanding of what is going on. So I think that kind of relieves some pressure on having our docs be better. Um, And I think the other thing is that it's, as I said before, it's just a lot to ask of maintainers to please go write me some nice docs. Uh, And I think we as a community, one of the big things we can do is really emphasize to people that like contributing, like sure, contributing code is a good thing. Contributing to docs is one of the best things that you can do. And you're, I mean, I don't like tiering things, but I'm kind of like, if you're someone that goes around and adds docs to, to repositories, to libraries, to packages, that's a higher level of contribution than going in and like fixing some small bug because you're enabling people to right. now consume that and use that code. And you're making our community so much better than any one bug fix or feature addition can really do. Just to expand on that a little bit, uh, if you are new coming to Go, uh, that reference piece of Godoc basically comes for free, right? Um, so you do end up seeing a lot of libraries that it's just the reference and doesn't have any of the additional stuff. So like as a new person, you might get the idea that that is what Godoc is. But you're saying that it's not. Mm-hmm. It doesn't it's, have to It be. doesn't necessarily, but that's the state of it because it's kind of... Yeah, it comes for free, it's right? It's for free and it's kind of following the example that's there and yeah. So before we officially transition into unpopular opinions... Get your uh, trigger finger ready. Uh, I'm Jared. <laughs> Perhaps one thing to also acknowledge and consider is that it is intimidating for somebody who is learning Go or really any other programming language for that matter to just go read the code, right? If you're old enough to sort of uh, remember the first days of the web when when everybody was a little, you know, at least those of us who were in tech were kind of learning HTML and JavaScript and CSS and all that stuff, you can always view source, right? And, and everything was just right there. You know, the, the JavaScript was right there. The, the HTML was right there. The CSS was right there. The, the, you know, a lot of us sort of learn, you know, self or self-thought that way, right? We read the code only because I don't think we didn't have anything better right there were the books and things like that but i don't know about you but you know back back in the day when i first started out i couldn't afford a 40 dollars book you know from a publisher um stuff wasn't available online as it is now right so really like a lot of us sort of taught ourselves by you source right so i think today things can be easier and then there's nothing wrong with reading you know and learning by view source you know if if, if that's the way you learn best. Great. Read the code and, and the, the standard library, um, minus a few parts, is generally very readable. <laughs> the good parts. <laughs> the good parts. <laughs> it's generally very Maybe readable. a good blog post. Um, Point out which right, parts we right, should read right. and which ones we shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> I think where I'm, where I'm going with this is that there are many solutions. Well, no. There are many parts to the solution to this problem. Right. And... Different things will be applicable under different circumstances. Even if you're the same person, you may need different kinds of documentation um, at different times, right? And if depending on the level you're at, you know, beginner, intermediate, advanced, you know, master of, of the universe for that thing, whatever it is, you know, you, you, you will need some documentation at some point, right? It's just going to, you have to find the, the kind of documentation that is tailored at the level you're looking for it, but there is no shortage, right, for documentation. If you are out there, and I'm speaking to you, listener uh, or watcher, if you are out there and, and thinking, oh, I've been reading to me, meaning to sort of a, um, muster up the energy or overcome the imposter syndrome to write a blog post that's beginner, but and you're thinking, oh man, that, but everybody's already written a, a beginner blog post on this thing. 
like I'm, my voice doesn't matter. I'm not going to really add anything to that. You know, like get you need to get over that, right? Um, there's always room, right, for new ideas. There's always room for new thinking, new approaches, right? Even if you think you're re- rehashing something else somebody has said, I haven't read your take on that thing. I've read dozens more, but I don't mind reading another one. So get over that fear, right? Put something out there, wh- whatever form or shape that you'd like. Just contribute right your part right we want we want your part in the lore right especially for documentation as we're talking about here we mm-hmm. want your part of the story so contribute that how often do you think about internal tooling I'm talking about the back office apps, the tool the customer service team uses to access your databases, the S3 uploader you built last year for the marketing team, that quick Firebase admin panel that lets you monitor key KPIs, and maybe even the tool that your data science team had together so they can provide custom ad spend insights. Literally every line of business relies upon internal tooling, but if I'm being honest, I don't know many engineers out there who enjoy building internal tools let alone getting them excited about maintaining or even supporting them. And this is where retool comes in. Companies like DoorDash, Brex, Plaid, and even Amazon, they use retool to build internal tooling super fast. Retool gives you a point, click, drag and drop interface that makes it super simple to build these types of interfaces in hours, not days. Retool connects to any database or API, for example, to pull data from Postgres, just write a SQL query and drag and drop a table onto the canvas. And if you want to search across those fields, add a search input bar and update your query, save it, share it. It's too easy. Learn more and try it free at retool.com slash changelog. Again, retool.com slash changelog. Good stuff. Man, I like that song. Okay, so during pre-show, Ian told us he came prepared, like ready to go to fire off a blevy of just unpopular opinions. Ian, lay one on us. It's really one that I really thought of. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I think that opinion is that futures and our promises have a place in Go. Uh, I don't know. I'm not saying that belongs in the standard mm-hmm. library or should even be used often, but I definitely think like the community is lacking like a really good like future and or promise package. And I can elaborate on why, but I don't know if you want that. <laughs> oh, so you just want to drop the bomb and oh, you, you got to say why. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my friend, you're going to have to explain yourself. Just hangs up on All us. Right, yeah. yeah. Please tell so, us why. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I think that you can do everything that you could do with futures and or promises. I'm just going to call them futures now using just channels and uh, just kind of native go syntax. But this idea of having like just a piece of memory that is or is not ready that I'm going to put something is just so simple. And it's so easy to reason about that for doing like pipelining and complex, like parallel things, especially to someone that doesn't necessarily, that's not necessarily a go expert. Like, it's so much easier to reason about than 
passing channels around or worrying about if this channel, who's going to close this channel? Is this channel closed? Um, that sort of thing. And I've been experimenting with it off and on. And I do think it leads to some very, very readable code, especially for things that are inherently unreadable, like concurrency code. It's kind of inherently hard to read, right? So yeah, um, I think that we're lacking that. And I think it would actually be beneficial. Ian, I don't believe you. <laughs> you don't believe me that it's that it doesn't exist. It does exist, no, but there. Well, well, yeah. I don't. I don't believe. I'm going to dissent. I don't <laughs> believe that promises or something like it is needed in Go. I think that is something that is a paradigm. That is a way of thinking about sort of concurrency that is a carryover perhaps from the JS world um, or other sort of uh, technologies that use the, use those paradigms. And again, I'm not saying it, those things are bad. You know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying channels over those kind of you know, mechanisms. More so, I'm in the camp that I'd like one way to do something and go. And the channels and the pr concurrency primitives that we have now do that job exceptionally well, if you don't abuse them, and adding another um, I, I always keep finding myself in this sort of spot where I'm sort of defending for <laughs> sort of a, a more, of a, more of a conservative approach to the status language, quo, you know, evolution. I know, right? Like, is this what <laughs> is this what happens when people just get comfortable with something and you just don't want no new ideas and new new, new thought? Yeah, like, get your yeah, futures so, off my lawn. <laughs> that is awesome that needs to be a clip somewhere <laughs> but the, yeah that's 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 i guess that's my approach I'm, I'm i guess i suppose like i appreciate the idea i'm just not convinced i kind of feel like building features around channels and like building an api for that feels like such a small api that it's I don't, tiny yeah i don't know if it's worth adding versus just writing it when you need it like, I think that's kind of where I sit with this. It's like, I think there are a place where this kind of concept of, of doing kind of like delayed processing makes a lot of sense. And I think that is a paradigm in Go using Go routines and channels. And I feel like this fits with the like, please don't expose channels more than we need a nice API for promises and futures. Because I think that's something that I think is kind of fraught in the Go community, like Putting like returning channels to people is uh, it, it's it's a foot gun. It's definitely a foot gun because, um, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, as you brought up, like who's going to close the channel? Who owns this channel? Who puts what? So I think there there are some definite downsides to exposing channels. But I think, you know, just covering them up a little bit and then kind of having the same concept is, is definitely a, a programming paradigm that's useful. I think my worry with, you know, adding an official promises or futures type of thing is that it'll encourage people not to learn go routines and channels. It'll encourage people to like, oh, I know this from JavaScript, so I'm going to keep doing it the way that I did in JavaScript. And uh, nothing against like the paradigms of other languages, but this is this is Go. We we have our idioms and we have them for a reason. Um, if, if you're going to hang out in the Go camp, please learn our idioms. <laughs> like I I'm, <laughs> I have had my share of like that Java Go, that Ruby Go, that C Go, and that JavaScript Go, and I like I I don't really want any more of it. And and I I understand that. Um... And I would be against adding it to the standard library, like, or as a language feature. Um, just the idea of like a similar concept to a feature as like, like you said, a wrapper around channels that just does not actually expose the channel. It's, I've used it in a couple of places and it's, it's worked really well. 
And I, th- I think there was a proposal we talked about, uh, what was that, last week? Yeah, last week, uh, that had this kind of like deferred processing. I think it was called eval. Um, that is a similar concept uh, to this, where it's like you can actually make it so a function doesn't execute unless it's actually used, which I think is kind of related type of functionality, but also slightly different. But I could also see how that could easily be abused to make futures and put them everywhere and have Go be inherently less readable. All right. Chris, we're right at your doorstep. What is your unpopular opinion? I think my unpopular opinion, I think it's, it's related to the content of the show, but I think it's that we shouldn't try and make software engineering as a whole too easy, or I guess easier. And I, get, mm-hmm. I, I want to extrapolate on that Please do. quite a bit. Please do. <laughs> I don't want to hear this one. <laughs> I was actually going to joke about that earlier. Like, we're making it too easy to learn. So I, I think that the, the trouble here is that while it's really helpful for people to have an easy on-ramp to, like, learning and acquiring a language, there is going to be a point at which it is going to be hard. It's just, it's just going to be hard. And I think it does us a disservice or does people a disservice if they are given, I feel like it's kind of like a bait and switch, right? If they're given this kind of easy on-ramp to doing like the basic stuff and the simple stuff, and then they get walloped with this, oh, now everything's going to get really hard and you're not going to have any of that stamina, any of that kind of discipline built up to kind of get yourself over that. Um, and I think that's, uh, there's some things I've, I've read. I don't remember where I've read them, but this idea that like, you know, starting off computer science, uh, curriculum with, you know, pointers and recursion basically weeded out a lot of people because it was such a hard concept for people to grapple with. But the result of the people that pushed through was that they had a much easier time in the long run being able to like comprehend and understand computer science curriculum. And I think that's kind of true of a lot of things that are like this, a lot of things that involve a lot of practice or a lot of you know, not having fun most of the time. I read this book recently called Peak, and, you know, one of the things that they talk about in the opening of it, the book really is all about, like, how do you become, like, expert level or elite level at what you're doing? And the thing that they kind of put in the beginning is like, okay, well, if you want to become like a really good tennis player, a lot of people think like, okay, well, can just like get a tennis racket and, and start playing some tennis games and kind of do it on the weekend. And then I'll just kind of keep doing that. And, and that will be enough. That'll be sufficient. And like, you can't become a great tennis player by doing that. You kind of have to like continue pushing yourself. And I think that in, in that kind of vein, by making it really easy to start up, by making it so that you just get all of these like quick wins, you just get really addicted, really, really addicted to those quick wins. And there's nothing there to help you push through when you get to the other side. So either you stop learning, which I think is the epidemic that is in our industry right now, is people not advancing their skills, not learning, not practicing, not reading the docs more, um, or you, you quit because you've just hit this wall. And so I think it's, it's definitely, I feel like this is like super unpopular, but I, I feel like it's, it's kind of what I feel is like some like real talk is like, yeah, it, this is not an easy industry. This is not an easy thing to do. And if we can't weather through what is necessary to acquire the skills that we're going to have to have to continue to grow in the future, we're going to continue having the problems that we have now with the quality of our software and our ability to hire and retain <laughs> and, and kind of grow as a community. I feel like Johnny has like a very uh, something to say about that. <laughs> nope, I'm gonna pass. On that one. <laughs> I have things to say, unless Johnny, you were you were just joking? You were actually you were gonna, you gonna bring something? 
No, no, no. Okay. Yeah. I, I understand the context in which Chris is talking yeah. about it. And, and yeah. I would say I agree and disagree with you. And I think that what I agree about is that we should not act as if this is not difficult. I think that's the bait and switch. I think that right. should be clear and upfront that this is a difficult thing. It's a very young industry. We're still figuring it out as we're going, which means the goalposts are going to move as you advance. And you're going to have to be okay with that because as they move, you're going to have to change the direction that you're kicking or you're going to miss a lot of sh- shots. I don't know. I'm losing my metaphor. <laughs> Kicks. Goals. I think goals. Ball. Football. Basketball. Like, where are we? Where? Sorry, I went to a football <laughs> metaphor and I immediately lost it. So we should be up front with that, right? Like, this is not an easy discipline. It's going to get really hard. You're going to hit, you know, this problem, that problem, the other thing. And you're going to have to be able to power through that. There are not just complex issues, but even just topics that are like really hard to grok, recursion, pointers, you know, computer science-y things. So that should not be like, we're not like, hey, everybody should be a developer because it's easy and it's fun. And that's like, it's all unicorns and rainbows because that's just not the case. Like there's a lot of hard work, all the things that you're saying, Chris. That being said, the quick wins are very empowering and easy on-ramps the easy on-ramps aren't going to stop the people who are going to make it through. Like the ones who did really good at the recursion class in the class, they're also going to get through those easy on-ramps just fine. But what they, those on-ramps can provide for somebody is sort of like an extrinsic motivation that they may not have had otherwise, especially for young people, that, hey, there is satisfaction in this career. There is empowerment in this career. There is things that you can do which will give you joy or help others. And you can do those things if you power through and we can get you started as easily as possible to get to the hard parts, I think that those might provide some people with motivation that they may never have gotten to if you just hit them over the head with recursion. So I'm kind of a both minds. I see what you're saying. Like we don't, we shouldn't bait and switch, but I don't think that means we have to make it hard like on purpose because it's already going to be hard or not easier. I don't know. I can't remember how you ordered it. Yeah, I agree with you on that. I think that the, way I'm trying to, it's tough to articulate this well, because it, it is like a very nuanced and careful <laughs> thing. This isn't saying like, but it has oh, to we, be a one-liner for unpopular opinion, because that's the segment, right? <laughs> we we should, I'm not saying that we like shouldn't make our docs better, or that we, we shouldn't have more tutorials or more books yeah, that make it uh, easier to grok some of these concepts, but I think you really did hit on kind of, you know, what I'm trying to articulate here, which yeah. is we can't have this idea that like, oh, anybody can write an app or it's easy to write an app or it's easy to do this thing or come on board. It's just going to be great. Or like, or we can't kind of fall into that desperation of we need to hire a lot more software engineers. So we need to make it easier for people to become software engineers. That's, that's not the solution there. And I think that this unpopular opinion is kind of a, a pushback against that of saying like, no, this, this, what we're doing is, is extremely difficult. And we are very new. Like this industry is very new. We have a lot to figure out. And what we need right now isn't just more people. We don't need more bodies. Like I feel like every company has this thing where they're like, I need to hire 50 engineers. And it's like, you don't need more bodies. You need to have more concentration and discipline. And you, you need to be able to persevere through these, these bumps that you're hitting. And you can't, the mythical man month is, is still true. You can't just throw people at problems. And I feel like that's kind of the ethos of everything right now. Um, and I feel like the kind of way we're going with a lot of the material that we're creating is how do we make it easier for people to get in the door? And I think if we don't consider 
how do we ensure that people know that this isn't going to be as easy as we're trying to make it, then we're going to have a big problem in a couple of years. Well, that leads into my unpopular opinion. Ooh, lay it on us. Which is also, I kind of stole my own thunder earlier uh, <laughs> in the show because my opinion is that one of the primary traits of successful developers is stubbornness. Not intelligence mm-hmm. necessarily, not anything else. Although you can have, multi- we can have more than one trait, people. It can happen. But I think that what I've seen over the years and what I've experienced is the ones that really succeed and of course define success, right? Proficiency in what they're doing. Maybe you reach a level of like a CTO, maybe you're a senior engineer, whatever it is, like you can build apps, you can make it through, is that those people are generally stubborn and maybe that's not the perfect word to use, but that refusal to give up until it works, you know, the powering through the docs that we talked about or through the source code, the willingness to dive into the source code and say, nah, I'm not going to just go eat dinner right now. Now, it doesn't mean it's always the best trait, but I think it's, it's there often, right? I'm going to sit here and I'm not leaving until I understand this. Like that, I see that in so many su- successful software engineers that I've met over the years that we've interviewed on the shows. Uh, the ones that'll just re- keep rewriting that function until it's good enough. Like they're never happy with it being good enough and they're going to keep going until they have like the ability to write functions pretty well the first time around or maybe the second pass. Um, stubbornness is usually there. Now, stubbornness causes all sorts of problems too, right? <laughs> like it can actually be maladaptive in many circumstances and make social interactions and working on a team and like all these things can actually cause problems. But I think it's a virtue uh, in certain cases when it comes to software development. I think that lots of the people I've seen who are successful are also stubborn or persevere, or however you want to say it in a kinder way. That's my opinion. And I'm not going to change my mind about it because I'm stubborn. <laughs> I don't think that's un- unpopular. I, maybe it's my, my weird way of thinking, but like, I, I think that that's true of like a lot of, uh, in a lot of disciplines, like I've been talking about, you know, being an athlete or being a musician, I think yes. like that stubbornness is required to get to those elite levels. And I think that you're you're exactly right in that like you have to develop that ability to just kind of stick with it. Because uh, if you don't, yeah, it's just going to be like, oh, I'm going to go do something else. It, it reminds me of the, I don't know where I heard it, but there was like, a, you know, was, someone was watching some like a band playing and they kind of went up to the keyboard player afterward and they're like, oh man, I like wish I could play keyboard as well as you. And the guy was like, no, you don't. And he was like, and the guy was the, the <laughs> audience member was like, wait, what, what, what do you mean? He's like, oh, if, if you wanted, if you wish you could play keyboard as well as me, you'd spend 10 hours a day practicing like I do. Yeah. And I think that that kind of hits on the same sort of thing that you that you were saying, right? That this stubbornness, this perseverance, this like right. wanting to to you know stick with it and keep doing it even when it gets tough. I think the reason why I think it might be unpopular is because of the stereotype or maybe the mythos of like the the 10x engineer is the one who like was doing math equations when they were eight and they have like this intelligence. Like it seems like that seems to be what people think is the primary trait is like some sort of, they think like systems thinking, intelligence, I don't know, these other traits. And I think actually just powering through is what most successful engineers end up doing to get to where they are. Johnny, what do you think? I think if you can find those 
quote unquote 10x engineers, the, the, the people that are so brilliant, they, they stand out from the crowd. And I'm not saying those people don't exist. You know, there's a lot of literature around 10x engineering um, out there yeah. floating about. Uh, but uh, if you can find those people and you can afford them, hire them. I'm not saying they don't exist, but if, if you can find them and you can afford them, hire them. Good for you. But this leads into my next, my actual unpopular opinion. Well. I would rather work with a single junior developer that has spent the time to acquire domain knowledge and expertise than with a team of senior developers without that domain expertise. Because while I can go fast with that team of senior developers, I am more likely to actually solve the problem right the first time with that domain knowledge that I'm getting from that junior developer. Hmm. And that expertise, it's acquired how? We'll just spend a whole episode talking about it. <laughs> I, I feel like in that case, though, is that, is that junior engineer really a junior engineer or are they a it's just a senior title, engineer? Right? It's just a title, yeah. right? Uh, another hot take, unpopular opinion. Our titling in this industry is absolutely atrocious. Yes. Ooh, that's, that's for another episode. We're going to dive into that one. <laughs> All right. Well, there you have it, folks. Thank you so much for having spent an hour plus talking about documentation of all things but as you at least should know by now there's different levels of documentation there's there's different ways of consuming documentation documentation can add value to not just your know-how but also your career right you can be strategic about documentation i'm reading and consumption not just tactical not just to look up the, the just when you need it you go look for it you can be deliberate about knowledge acquisition through documentation reading and if you have ideas for how to improve our go community's documentation and body of works around documentation we welcome your contributions and efforts with that i thank my guests on the show ian thank you for coming yeah i was happy to be here awesome jared our our editor slash guest as well today thank you for for being here Mm, thanks for inviting me yes it it was a blast and as always chris Thank you for being here and adding lots of flavor. Of course, that's what I do. Awesome, awesome. All right, y'all, until next one. You can support our work and help ensure that GoTime continues into the future with a Changelog++ membership. Ditch the ads, get closer to the metal, and directly contribute to all Changelog podcasts at changelog.com slash plus plus. Once again, that's changelog.com slash plus plus. Check it out. This episode was hosted by Johnny Borsico and produced by Jared Santo with music from the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. GoTime is brought to you by our awesome sponsors. Special thanks to Fastly, LaunchDarkly, and Linode. Next up on the pod, it's time for part two of Indecent Go Language Proposals. Daniel Marti is back, and we also added Roberto Clapis to the panel. Stay tuned for that one. It'll be hitting your ear holes next week. Matt Ryer here. Um, junior devs often ask, 
how do you remember all the types, methods and functions from the standard library? Well, my answer is always the same. It's a great question. If you can, pop them into a song like I do. So, Filepath Walk becomes Sweet Filepath of Mine. Directories are filtered by Walkman. The files are walked in lexical order, which makes the output deterministic, but means that for very large directories, walk can be inefficient. Walk does not follow symlinks. Walk does not. Sponsor me on GitHub, please.